0: So tonight I want to continue on with the talks on the Dasa Sutta, these ten reflections. I'm actually going to try and go a little more quickly tonight, because otherwise I won't talk about anything else the whole retreat. So, see if we can get through. If you remember the first one was, I am no longer living according to worldly aims and values. The second one, my re- very life is sustained through the gifts of others. Third, I should strive to abandon my former habits. And fourth, does regret over my conduct arise in my mind. That's where we got to last time. And I talked about these two qualities of hiri and otapa, um, a sense of uh, your own inner conscience and ethical values, and then otapa, the sense of, um, having respect or regard for the opinions of others in, re- in respect to our conduct. And really, I see that the fourth one is hiri, and the fifth one is about otapa. And that's where I'll begin tonight. Could my spiritual companions find fault with my conduct? Now, that's again one that could raise, push a lot of buttons for people. As soon as we bring in these words, other people and judging, uh, the mind can just run wild with that. And of course, that's not so helpful. It's not the intention of this reflection. Traditionally, it would be literally about um, the monks and their uh, following of the Vinaya, or the rules of conduct that all monks and nuns undertake when they ordain. For monks, it's 227, and for nuns, there's even more this practice of vineyard of attending to these rules of conduct is um, a very much a support for mindfulness. It can be a practice in and of itself. Many monasteries uh, in Asia put a real emphasis on emphasis on the strictness of the ways their monks follow the vineyard. And Guy spoke the other just last night about uh, his little, Dance around that, you know. If someone says, "Come and speak to me," it's like, "Uh oh." Of the 227 rules, which one did I break? Uh, what is he? What is he uh, upset with me about? That that. Um, and so he was very much in that, in this reflection. Could my spiritual companions find fault with my conduct? And forced to look at what he had done that mightn't have been quite within the guidelines, quite within the precepts. And all of them were small, and the one that actually was was even smaller again. But this, is, this, this just is a teaching on um, the refinement of our attention to this kind of detail. There's a whole text on the Vinaya, on all the rules um, for the monks and nuns. And if you read it, you'll see that each of these rules, all of the 227 of them, came out of some infraction. And some of those stories are quite strange, funny, and even a little weird. And even the rules that have come out. I mean, 227, that's a lot of rules. Uh, and so I was looking through the vineyard just to see what kinds of things monks have to attend to. And here's one I found. If wool accrues to a bhikkhu, as he is going on a journey, he may accept it if he so desires. Once he accepts it, he may carry it by hand there being no one else to carry it, three leagues, that's 30 miles at most. Should he carry it further than that, even if there was no one else to carry it, it is to be forfeited and confessed. So some reason or another, someone carrying wool was a problem 2,500 (laughs) years ago. And so someone came to the Buddha and complained and the Buddha made a rule, thou shalt not carry wool more than 30 miles. 30 miles, I don't know. But this is the kind of attentiveness that monks and nuns now have to pay to the precepts, and some of them are quite obscure. As we live together here on retreat, our lives are much simpler. We just have the manager's talk in the beginning, and then our regular announcements, and that's all you really have to to worry about listening to or following. But even with that, you know, the thought can come up, did I keep a back, Jack? Are people talking about me about the back? You know, was that me that did that? Um, it's not to get obsessive about this. This is not the intention. Um, but there are guidelines that we put out that do help us live together in harmony. And it, it is somewhat based on the precepts. Even though we don't have 227, we do have five or eight it may be, but the five are the ones that really concern our behavior and our interactions. And hopefully you can see now, after we've taken these and lived together for a while, how they do support this sense of safety and community, both everyone committing to noble silence, or this sense of security. I don't, you probably already noticed none of the doors have locks here. The, the bedrooms are all uh, without locks, but I always feel very safe here. So, it is a way we support each other by our attentiveness to those uh, broad guidelines that we took in the beginning of the training precepts. But of course, when something like this is spoken about, you know, could other people find fault with our conduct? The mind goes further than that. I'm sure you've all noticed. Um, so, not to make yourself crazy with kind of judging everything you're doing and worrying if you're impacting someone because there is this functioning of the mind that we develop on retreat, many of you are familiar with it, called yogi mind, which is, which happens when in the silence things get blown way out of proportion. Because we can't communicate, a lot of our reference points um, get taken away, and something that's quite small can become the biggest drama in our lives, whether it's something someone else has done or something you've worried yourself about doing. So this isn't an invitation to huge amounts of self-consciousness and kind of always this second-guessing yourself in your interactions with each other. You know, there's not Big Brother here with the surveillance cameras. There's no need for homeland security to get involved with our lives here on retreat. It's out of the bounds of that. But there can be, on retreat, out of the silence, this out of proportion sense of self-referencing. Have you noticed that? You know, where everything is about me, the, what, they, you know, what other people are doing and what I'm doing. It's all, how does it affect me? What do I think about that? I, I mean, it's a little natural. We've got no one else to talk to, but this is, this is what we do on retreat. Um, and if we have a tendency towards criticism, that can really be fed by that. Yvonne Rand, who's a Zen teacher. Unfortunately, she's, she's somewhat ill at the moment, but she's a very wise person and quite earthy. She has this saying about this tendency of self-referencing m- matched with a critical nature, and, and excuse the, another little bit of profanity here. What she says is this common way we construct our experiences. I'm the little piece of shit that the world revolves around. LAUGHTER and it's so true how we can go between, you know, being worthless and, and criticizing ourselves, yet everything is judged in its impact on me. And, you know, how does this work for me, and I don't like this. And so just to hold that in mind, when you find the self-referencing getting a little strong. Someone gave me some cartoons at the beginning of the retreat, and they're really, really good for uh, practice. One of them is from Zitz, you know, is that teenage boy, all his friends and the parents. And um, I actually don't know his name. The, the main guy is lying on his bed in that kind of adolescent pose of languor and talking to his friend. And he says, you know, one of the two things that really ticks me off is I never get everything I want. You mm-hmm. can re- relate to that one. And the other guy says, well, yeah, in case you hadn't noticed, everything isn't about you. And the first one says, yeah, that's the other thing. (laughs) And we go between these two, you know, just everything is about me and my needs and my wants, but in a moment it can flip to everything is about me and how bad I am and and other people are judging me and I'm not doing this good enough. So this is just the tendency that can grow in the silence as we um, pay attention to our process. I've often had the experience, and maybe you have too, of, you know, worrying about something I've done on retreat that might have offended someone, that I took something accidentally, or moved something of someone's, and even apologizing to someone after the retreat, you know, I'm sorry I did that, and they're kind of like, what are you talking about? You know, they, they had no idea, but for me it became a big thing that I carried. So it really is to find some balance in this. And of course, as soon as we take up this concept, you know, could other people find fault with my conduct, we immediately reverse it. And how much are we finding fault with other people's conduct? And to pay attention to that. We've spoken quite a bit already about this tendency to judging and how painful it can be and the sense of separation it brings. And so this is not a reflection on improving that skill. It really is... um, refining our values and the, 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 the more um, things that actually relate to our practice and our, our sense of being in community and safety. Because we have an impact on each other as we live in community. And as I said, I hope, hope by now you can really feel that, um, how we do support each other, even in the silence, just in our presence, in our commitment, and our practice, the way the flow of the day goes, and it's just easier to do it because other people are practicing with you in the sitting and the walking. It's, it's this this sense of cohesion that forms in the group because we're all supporting each other in living in community. And even though this community is in silence, it definitely is a community, as a Sangha, as we said in the, the beginning, But I find there is also a real value in living in um, a more daily life kind of community. If those of you that haven't had that opportunity, it really is uh, a wonderful thing to do. And all of us here have had that opportunity. Might be noted that we choose not to now not live in community, but (laughs) very much appreciate the opportunity and what we learned when we did that. Guy and I actually began a meditation community in England and lived there for about two and a half years. It was a beautiful situation physically uh, the top floor of a Georgian mansion in, in, um, in, near Totnes in uh, Dartmouth. Gosh, that's terrible. I can't remember the county. Devon. I was going to say Dartmouth, but that's the town. It's been a long time. In Devon. Um, So the physical situation was beautiful, but living in community is hard. And all of the meetings we had to have to make it go smoothly and the agreements we had to come to and the resentments of the so-and-so wasn't getting up to do the early morning sit or wasn't pulling their weight and just this sense of flexibility we had to learn to be able to live together like that, very healthy, and to be able to give each other feedback and appreciation as we lived and practiced and worked together. It was a meditation community, so we put on events. We put on classes and daylongs and hosted teachers and monks and nuns who would come to visit. So it was quite a rich place for practice. And the community continued for some time, actually. um, A year or so after we were there, as it was growing, Stephen Batchel and his, his wife, Martine, joined us. And many of you know Stephen and Martine. They teach here and are both well-respected authors and really added to the community. And then Guy and I left after, I said, uh, two and a half years. And the community continued for quite a while. Stephen and Martine eventually left. And it was interesting to track that community. There was a period where one person joined who was really difficult and basically ended the community because those agreements were broken. And there wasn't that sense of trust anymore. It was really sad to see that happen, but to see how much community relies on sharing these values and supporting each other. And it, it, it was possible for that to be broken when it wasn't held equally. So this sense of caring about the respect of others, especially people who we respect, who are our peers, our colleagues, or our mentors, our spiritual friends. This is a big part of our practice and part of this reflection. I remember Howie talking, I think it was in his first talk about one of his early retreats and seeing James practicing and really saying, that's how to practice seriously and basically imitating him. And you know there's a there's a naivete in that but I think also a real beauty to just see someone you respect and try to act like them. I think it's I think it's actually quite skillful. And so to see the effect we can have on others as we practice here, we're being inspired by other people, but to recognize that we're also inspiring others through our actions, through our diligence. James often talks on retreat about practicing with impeccability. Now, again, that seems like a high bar. To be impeccable really means to be faultless. And I don't think any of us really think that we can be that all the time. But just a sense of care, of really holding this value of the impact we have on the container here and how um, we can contribute to that through our attentiveness To these guidelines that we've said about the retreat container and coming into sittings on time and the stillness and the silence, all of that is so helpful. Now, as I say that about you know looking at the schedule and attending to the schedule, it's not that you know you have to be at every sitting and walking and that's good practice. I think especially on a long retreat, it can really serve us to find our own rhythm of practice to find what works for us. But when there are guidelines, when there is a sitting, we're aware of that. And we come in the beginning and we stay till the end or longer, but we don't go in between when people are sitting. So it's just that sense of protection of the container that we've all created here together. So not to take this too seriously, you know, again, this sense of self-consciousness, of people looking at me or criticizing me, but more an inner referencing to the values that you know you appreciate on retreat. And so there can be that sense of impeccability as we practice here together. The next reflection, the sixth one, is a real shift in the sutta. The other ones have been uh, on a kind of relative level, sort of about our actions, our habits, the things we do. Here there's a real shift to more of a wisdom teaching, really a truth, pointing to the truth. The sixth reflection is, All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise will become separated from me. It's really bringing in the, the uh, inevitability of death. That's the ultimate separation. It's the ultimate challenge in our lives, in our practice, this finality of death where we leave everything, everything gets left behind though I recently did see a cartoon had a man with a big sack on his back and a figure in robes and obviously the pearly gates and he's going, you can't stop me now, I've gotten this far. (laughs) But only in cartoons, I think. It is true that everything, except perhaps our karma, we leave behind as we go through that process, that dying process, and into death. This reflection on death is central to the Buddha's teachings and in many spiritual traditions because of its power, because of the inevitability of death, yet also the unknowability. We don't know when or how. Could be tomorrow, could be tonight, who knows? Could be many years down, but inevitable. Don Juan, in teaching Carlos Castaneda, said, As a practice, keep death over your left shoulder to really have that sense that it's not something distant, far away. But right here with me, in this very life, is death. They go together. In beginnings, there are endings. It's a powerful reflection, really puts things in perspective. You You only have to read the paper and all of the tragedies, the disasters, over the last years, that just shake us and our sort of confidence in the reliability of the world, you know, from 9/11 to tsunamis and hurricanes and wars, and just you know getting a sense of the people who've been directly affected by those and how their lives like, you know, many died, of course, but those who survived, their lives just torn apart through these experiences, everything that they owned, lost. James told that amazing story of the woman the other night who, in the big fire in the Oakland Hills, lost everything. Mm-hmm. And then her relationships, and there were deaths, and even the dog died. I mean, it just—it was so powerful. So to, to really hold this as an ever-present truth puts things in perspective. You know, what do we really value? What's important for us? Knowing that this is a truth. And of course, it's not just about our own death. There's the death of our loved ones, the people we care about, friends and family. This is too that great loss, that great separation, that finality. How do we hold that? Unfortunately, my mother died about Gosh, it's getting on now. Eight years ago. Big loss to my family. Um, But I keep in regular contact with my dad, who's in Australia. He's going to be 80 this year. And he's kind of my guide on this exploration of death, because he's older. And uh, every time I call him up, he begins our phone call with a recitation of the funerals he's attended that week. (laughs) He goes to a lot. Partly because he knows a lot of people. He lives in the house I was born in nearly 50 years ago. Um, So he's very much part of the community. But he's also the church organist. So he plays at all the funerals that happen at the church. And it's his habit to read at least two newspapers' obituary columns every day. And so the phone call often begins, you know, do you remember the halls? They used to live, you know, two blocks up and at number 94, and they had a daughter and she was about, you well, Mr. Hall is, you know, and there'll be this, i sort of, I kind of remember, you know, I don't remember. And it's just this, every time I call him up, it's either someone's in hospital or someone has died. Do you know them, he'll ask. Do you remember them? And, you know, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. And I've kind of asked him, how do you deal with this? Everyone you know just kind of, Disappearing. And he, I don't think he's fully open to it yet. He just kind of says, well, it's just what happens. And he also has all these euphemisms for dying. The, the, the one he used to use, or still, he, he swaps them around, is so, oh, so and so, yeah, he's fallen off his perch. <laughs> and then not so long ago, he, he was talking about Mr. White, and he said, yeah, past his use by date. <laughs> um, so, e- even if it, in its seriousness because it is for people like my father so ever present you have to change your relationship to it it's not something that's way out there in the future, it's right here how do we hold that, how do we work with that but this sense of finality of ending this reflection on death is not just about the big D, you know, the final one. These endings happen to us all the time. Over and over again are these losses where we're separated from what we love. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. Does that happen to you? you know, through our, in relationships, in our living situations, as we travel, in work, we think everything's just kind of together and then the company goes bankrupt. Or the relationship ends, for whatever reason. These losses happen over and over again. We're always trying to hold on and build that structure in our lives that seems safe, seems permanent, seems abiding. It's going to fall apart in one way or another. And not adding the resistance to that is what helps us to be with it as it actually is. I've told this story before here, and it's not a plea for Donna, but recently for some reason everything in our household has fallen apart or broken. Um, And I, I just have this list. First it was the hot water heater. It blew up and it leaked, so there was leak damage. Then we had termites. The furnace went out and had to be repaired. The stove is broken, and so is one of the elements. The dishwasher doesn't work. Our doors leaked, and the so there's a lot of water damage we had to repair, and the carpets are all stained and have to be replaced, and the bathtub cracked, and that's just a short list of what's going on in our house at the moment. And sometimes we just stand in the middle of the house, and it literally feels like it's falling apart as we stand there. You know, it's gotten to a certain age, past its use by date. It's like everything needs to be replaced, and it's. Kind of unsettling because you know, we take our home to be that place of safety where we go to and feel comfort, and when it's all kind of feels like it's dissolving, there's that unsettledness to our experience. And coming on retreat, I think I spoke about that in one of the earlier reflections how that's kind of like a dying, you know, our old familiar room and. Habits and distractions and people we know and care about and schedules, everything that's familiar, we give up to come here on retreat. So this is part of this practice, It's reflection. This is what happens to us over and over again. The Tibetans say that actually all of our practice is preparation for our dying. Now, I don't find that morbid, actually. It's not that, you know, we should always be thinking about death and that, you know, every step is a death and every breath is a death. This is, that's not the skillful way of holding it. But opening to it can bring a huge lightness to the heart and mind when there's not resistance to this truth, this truth of the dissolution, of the separation Ajahn Chah has this great passage about this awakening to how things are. Ajahn Chah is a Thai forest meditation master, actually the teacher of Ajahn Samedo. So you'll often hear Ajahn Samedo refer to practicing with Ajahn Chah in Thailand. Ajahn Chah says, How can you find right understanding? I can answer you simply by using this glass of water I am holding. It appears to us as clean and useful, except this is plastic, it's not quite so elegant. It's clean and useful, something to drink from and keep for a long time. Right understanding is to see this as broken glass, as if it it has already been shattered. Sooner or later, it will be shattered. If you keep this understanding while you're using it, that all it is is a combination of elements which come together in this form and then break apart, then no matter what happens to the glass, you will have no problem. The body is like the glass. It is also going to break apart and die. You have to understand that. Yet when you do, it doesn't mean you should go and kill yourself, just as you shouldn't take the the glass and break it or throw it away. The glass is something to use until it falls apart in its own natural way. In the same way, the body is a vehicle to use until it goes its own way. Your task is to see what the natural way of things is. This understanding can make you free in all the changing circumstances of the world. So in turning to face this truth, There is a freedom, but usually at first there's fear, there's contraction, because we so want to find solidity, safety, security, and this can seem so empty or that we are so alone. We use the things of the world, our relationships, for comfort, And that's a really natural thing to do. It's not a wrong or bad thing to do. We just have to see the limitations of that kind of comfort. It's not ultimate. It's not what will free us or help us in those moments when we're really challenged, when things do fall apart. So how to hold this skillfully? The Buddha's response was to look for what was beyond death, unchanging, unconditioned, that that's immovable, peace of the greatest possibility. This is what the teachings offer us in response to this reflection about the unsatisfactoriness, the changing nature, the impermanent nature of this world and all our experiences. So to just use the simplicity of the retreat to work with this reflection, again, not in a morbid way, but in this facing of the truth, to see if there can be a lightning, actually, in the heart and mind as we open to what's true about our experience, about our possessions and relationships, and our bodies. The next of the reflections goes on in this um, wisdom mode to a reflection on karma. The seventh reflection is I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma, Whatever karma I should do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. It's basically pointing to the importance of karma. It's <laughs> quite important. Uh, we'll be talking more about karma when we do the equanimity practice. That's the fourth and in some ways the most sublime of the Brahma Viharas and really is a practice of bringing in equanimity around this teaching on karma and cause and effect. Karma literally means volitional action, actions that we do knowingly, out of choice. The sort of pop culture understanding of karma is a misunderstanding. You know, that line, instant karma is going to get you, as though it's something that's out there and, and you're going to be subject to and it's kind of fatalistic. It really is just this simple meaning of intentional actions. That's a comic ev- event, an intentional action. Because of the power of intention and its relationship to karma, this is why we include, as part of our practice, the teaching and the practice of intention. And I've worked, many of you are working with this quite skillfully and just noticing intentions, often in just fairly neutral things, in walking, sitting, and standing. I think that's really helpful to build this capacity to take more notice of our intentions when they involve things that are more complex or perhaps more charged. We have that capacity to make wise choices with that mindfulness of intention. It puts in that gap in the momentum of our action so we can make a choice. We can make a choice out of wisdom or out of compassion. So if you are walking along and accidentally say step on an ant without even knowing it was there, that is not a karmic action. There is no karma accrued to something like that, even though you've killed A living being, which was one of the precepts that we took. Obviously, if you deliberately stomped on an ant, that's a very different karmic effect. And karma is considered to um, be involved in all the three levels of uh, our activity of thought, word, and deed, and each one progressively with more impact, more karmic weight. And obviously, action as we act has the greatest karmic weight. It, traditionally, the teachings on karma are very much involved in the teachings on rebirth, where there's an understanding that the actions of previous lives condition and have effect in this current experience, and this current experience's current life, will go on to affect subsequent lives. Now, you know, you, excuse me, you may believe that, um, It's in the teachings. It it can have a significant impact on our understanding of karma and the choices we make in this life. But I don't think you need to take on that belief or that understanding to see the impact of karma right here and right now in this life. I mean, I'm sure we're all aware of this cause and effect relationship that we experience all the time. And how in each moment we're actually going from birth to rebirth, a birth and a dying all the time. You know, all the different selves, all the different births we take, even in a day, you know, this fluctuation between good yogi and bad yogi. Have you seen that, mm-hmm. you know, where one sitting you're the best yogi in the whole and then the next time you come in you're full of fidgets and all you can think of is I'm such a bad yogi, why can't I get this right? And just just things like that all the identifications we have with our roles in the world. You know, I'm a mother, I'm a strong person, I'm a sick person, I'm the veggie chopper, whatever it might be. These are all identities that we take on, and each has its own conditionality, each has its own cause and effect. Obviously, the stickiness comes when we identify with and when we take on these roles and think of them as some way totally defining who we are. And then it really does condition our experience. So you can just, you know, think of so many examples in your own experience. Just one I thought of, you know, so there's a mother out of love, out of uh, care for a daughter, giving advice. You should do this, don't do that the daughter wanting independence as is natural, resisting. And just the whole dynamic that can get started with that. The actions, the speech, the, the, the nagging and the resistance and the arguments, these are just identities that these two individuals have taken up, but they have comic results because of that, uh, the actions that come out of that and lead to suffering in that particular dynamic. It said that that which the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon will become the inclination of the mind. So there really is a sense that whatever we, um, again, it's a little like the habits I spoke of earlier, whatever we, frequent, we cultivate in our minds, in our hearts, whatever we act out of, will be perpetuated. If we act out of anger, it's most likely that someone will be angry back at us, if we act out of kindness or generosity those receiving that are much more likely to be grateful and appreciative and gentle in return so you can see just this very immediate cause and effect relationship, if the mind is filled with anger in one moment unless wisdom or clarity, mindfulness comes in it's very likely the next moment will be filled with that anger and if we act out of that it again gets deepened but this teaching on karma isn't one of blame or of anyone deserving, deserving anything to happen to them. This is a misunderstanding, and this is nowhere to be found in the suttas, this sense of blame or victimization or that someone deserved something to happen to them. It's really seen as just a natural law of causes and conditions. Um, but often these causes and conditions are so subtle that we can't understand them. The karma is said to be one of the four imponderables. If you think too much about it, you'll go crazy. So it's not a recommendation that you should try to trace back, why is this happening to me? We can't know. But as Tanasaro Bhikkhu says um, about karma and the teachings, it's not fatalistic, This this sense of, oh, that's just my karma, I'm stuck in this, or that's their karma, that's their fault that they're experiencing this. He says, instead of promoting resigned powerlessness, the Buddhist notion of karma focused on the liberating potential of what the mind is doing in every moment. Who you are, what you come from, is not anywhere near as important as the mind's motives for what it is doing right now. So actually in karma, there's a real invitation in in opening to the teachings on karma to cultivate our mindfulness, to really see the potential for liberation and for changing these tendencies, changing these habits, as I spoke about earlier, in every moment, if the mindfulness is there, if the wisdom is there, if the clarity is there. And I thought I'd finish this little piece on karma. It's a short piece. It's a huge subject. I didn't want to go into it in detail with the quote that I bumbled so badly the other night because it applies to karma as well as habits. They're very much aligned. The thought manifests as word. The word manifests as deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care. And let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. So it's a great teaching just on the way this cause and effect conditionality. And if you seed unwholesome thoughts and actions, that will be the result. If you seed those thoughts and actions with love and concern for other beings, there'll be happiness, there'll be contentment. The eighth of the reflections is again another interesting one. The days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? I must admit, when I read that, the first thing that came into mind are those signs you see in shopping centers at a certain time of year. You know, only 10 shopping days until Christmas. Just that sense of urgency, it's not enough time, I haven't done everything. And you can just see when you're on retreat, the different responses we have to time. You know, the time is passing. For those of you that are here for a month, some of you might be saying, oh my God, another two weeks, how can I survive? And others of you are saying, only two weeks left, how can I make the most of it? You know, it's going so fast. And even the same person could say both those things in one day, depending on whether you had a good sitting or a bad sitting. It's all relative. But this isn't, a, we're not setting you up for an exam here. You know, it's not that there's something you have to accomplish. It really is a sense of just this wholeheartedness of practice. What's being referred to here in this notion, though, of the preciousness of our time is this quality called Samvega. It's a Pali word that's usually translated as spiritual urgency. And again, here's Tanjev Tanasaru Bhikkhu. says, it's a hard word to translate because it covers such a complex range, at least three clusters of feelings at once. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that come with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. Now Tan Jeff tends to be a little bit of a fundamentalist so that's his take on it but I hope you get the sense what some vegan means is just kind of looking around and saying what's important here? You know is just going on the regular cycle of work and money and, and worries and bills? Is that life? Or is there something more important to me, more valuable? And if there is, how do I connect with that? How do I deepen in that? How do I uh, encourage that opening? In the suttas, they talk about four dangers that we need to sort of keep in mind. And again, this is all a lot about, I can feel kind of this energy, but this is what it says in the suttas, danger number one. Death threatens from all sides. <laughs> Feels like a nature movie, you know, where they start showing the chase scenes. Danger number two, the conditions for practice may never again be so good. Could be true. The danger number three, there may not always be good teachers around. I don't know about that, but... Danger number four, the Sangha may someday decline. And really what it's pointed to, we just, we just don't know. You know, can we go on a long retreat again? Do we have this opportunity of all the conditions coming together of our health and our finances and the support, Spirit Rock, the conditions? We don't know. How do we make the most of our time here? It's really what the Buddha felt when he saw the four heavenly messengers that sent him on his quest for enlightenment. If you remember, he'd lived this totally sheltered life, went out finally from the palace and saw four messengers, an old person, a sick person, um, a dead person, and he'd never seen any of those before, and a monk or an ascetic. And he said, when he saw the old person, and it shocked him so much, I gave up the vanity of youth. When he saw the sick person, I gave up the vanity of health. When he saw the dead person, I gave up the vanity of life. And then the renunciate, he saw that this could be the way to find not just a way to accept death, old age, sickness, but to transcend it. That was some vega that the Buddha was experiencing. So again, it's just to really connect with our heartfelt aspirations that we've talked about. How can we be here in the most wholehearted way not with a sense of pushing or striving or agenda, but really present for our experience in all the different ways that it presents itself. Keeping the practice simple, knowing all you need to do is connect moment after moment in the simple way we've been talking about. Nothing grand, not looking for special experiences, but just that sort of authenticity of practice. It's all you need to do to make the most of this precious time. The ninth of the reflections is, do I delight in solitude? And I love this one. Um, It's a great question to ask yourself. Because, boy, we're in solitude here, even though we're surrounded by a 100 other people. We're essentially alone in the silence. The thing is, many of us come to meditation because we're introverts. and We actually love the silence. And the solitude you know, i 'm sure many of you relate to that Some, so many times when you tell people about silent retreats, they say, "How can you do that? How can you not talk? I could never not talk or that one other thing say, "My friends say, "You could never not talk for ten days or whatever." But even the people that feel that way when they come on retreat actually love the silence, love that sense of quietness and not having to be anything for anyone but just present for our own experience. But it can still be hard, even if we have that nature, even if we have that love. We are essentially alone here on our retreats, moving about in our days. We have our interviews every day, other day or so. But in between, that sense of solitude is ever-present with us. So how do we open to that? I can remember on a, a long retreat, just longing for a hug. And I'm not normally a very huggy kind of person, but it was just that sense of not being touched for that long, and and how that felt, there was something that I really was looking for. And so, not to say that we should definitely go around (laughs) hugging each other. But it's more to just turn that inwards and, and have this as a reflection. Because ultimately, of course, we need to be able to hug ourselves. That's the most important place. We can have that kind of connection. Stephen Batchelor, who I mentioned is joining our community those many years ago, has written many books. One of his interesting books he called Alone with Others. really explored this whole area, focusing a lot on the difference between having and being and how we look to um, acquiring things, even you know, non-material things like experiences or relationships, people um, and uh, possessions, to kind of define ourselves, and in the development of spiritual life, come to find what he calls a more authentic being that is okay just to be without these references of other people or other things. And this is the process we really cultivate when we're here on retreat in this um, solitary kind of way. This is what we learn in meditation, is that it's okay just to be. We don't even have to be any special way. Just the way we are can be okay. It can be a source of actually great delight. Great satisfaction, this in its simplicity, in its elegance, with things just as they are, because ultimately we are alone, you know, even here surrounded by people. I've, you know, how many you've heard people say that they're the loneliest they've been as being in a relationship where they haven't felt fully met. It can happen. But ultimately, we are alone. We come into the world alone, we're born alone, we'll die alone. No one can ever truly know us. You know, as close as we can be with someone, they can't know our inner experience. Only we know that. And coming to be friends with all of who we are is this process of beginning to delight in solitude. I actually think coming on retreat, especially a long retreat like this, we discover that we are our only companions, even with all these people around. Who are you spending all your time with? Who are you talking to all the time? Who are you eating your meals with, you know, going for walks with? It's you. And so to think of a retreat, it's a bit like a road trip. You know those road trip movies where there's a bunch of people who get thrown in together and they've got all these different personalities and in the beginning they fight and bicker and argue and resist and they, you know, different ones try to take control and direct it and it falls apart and there's all these mishaps, but eventually they come to some kind of understanding where they appreciate the good aspects of each other and accept the difficult aspects and it all is a you know, successful trip in the end. This is what we're doing here (laughs) with our own inner experience. You know, as I said, the good yogi, the bad yogi, the strong person, the lazy person, the energetic person, the good meditator, the, the healthy one, the lazy one. We're all here together on this trip. And we bicker and we fight and different ones try to take charge of the road and where we're going and how we should practice. And what this trip is about is accepting all of that bringing all of that together into some sense of cohesion and acceptance, where the strength of each contributes to the well-being. And there is this sense of knowing ourselves, not having to push pieces aside out of judgment or lack of self-acceptance. So where are you on the road trip of this retreat? So we develop this healthy relationship with ourselves. And... It's the best one we can have, when it's supportive, when it's one of acceptance and care and compassion. We're our best companion, our best friend. So in this solitude, so much can happen. It's so rich. Um, We can feel ecstatic, we can feel alone, we can feel the vulnerability, we can feel creative. But it's always rich, if we're present for it, if if we stay there in the experience. Mary Oliver is um, a poet who I'm sure many of you know, and I really get the sense that her poems come out of her solitude, as she just wanders in nature, in silence, She's not chatting away to people and pointing things out. She's with her inner experience. And here's a poem that, again, I'm sure you all know, but it just speaks to this. The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? It's just such a great poem, and it brings together a lot of these reflections about the preciousness of life and how beautiful it is when we're awake for it. In the quietness that can pay attention. The last of the reflections is, again, a challenging one. Has my practice borne fruit with freedom or insight so that at the end of my life I need not feel ashamed when questioned by my spiritual companions? Well, again, this is not about an exam. You know, people often worry, we'll talk more about it at, at the different endings of the retreat. Um, you know about what I'm gonna say to people when I get back you know what big experience can I tell how am I transformed we often say if people ask you how was your retreat the best answer is just to say great and that's all they need to know we sometimes think we should be a different person now that I'm a meditator you know that's another identity that we take up I'm a spiritual person now I shouldn't get angry But as Ajahn Sumedho says, your personality doesn't get enlightened. It doesn't often change very much. Um, You may remember Jack Kornfield's book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, where it basically consisted of a lot of interviews he did with people who'd had very deep, meaningful openings, awakening spiritual experiences, and how they then had to try and integrate those into their lives, into their world. They had to get jobs, they had to find a way to make a living, they had, to have, they had relationships. Um, so it's a great title after the ecstasy, The Laundry. And actually Jack, our, uh, beloved teacher, just had his 60th birthday. Many of you know there's a big celebration here at Spirit Rock for his 60th. And so there's some photos in the current Spirit Rock newsletter of the event that happened, and there's also a cartoon drawn by Stan Groff, who must be quite a good artist, it's a great caricature. Um, Stan Groff is a founder of holotropic breathwork and a very good friend of Jack's. And so it shows what is obviously Jack, the little mustache, the little face, and the glasses, with a guru swami hat on, in his robes, and he's ironing. <laughs> and the title is Dilemma of the Sexagenarian Guruji. And the little thought bubble, as Jack is there ironing, says, was that before the ecstasy, after the ecstasy, or instead of the ecstasy? <laughs> so this integration, you know, how do we do that if we have you know, we want these experiences, but even if we have them, what is that about? It's it's not about getting experiences. It really is about how we live our lives, how the truth becomes alive for us in an ever-present way, in this wild and precious life. So not to look for you know, evaluation. Oh, was this good or bad? Or I should be different now? It's in every moment what we're experiencing. Can we open to it? Can we be with it? The Dalai Lama is so helpful in this. He says, um, people often ask me, has my practice made a difference? And he says, well, I reflect about this, and if I look back six months or a year or two years, I'd have to say, no, I haven't changed very much. But if I look back five years or ten years, I can say, yes, I see a big change. I can see I've become wiser or more kind or more compassionate. So that's the kind of arc that we need to work with in our practice. Not agenda-oriented, not focused on experiences, but how do we live? Suzuki Roshi, in his great book, Zen Mind Begins Mind, says this about practice. While you are continuing this practice, week after week, year after year, Your experience will become deeper and deeper, and your experience will cover everything you do in your everyday life. The most important thing is to forget all gaining ideas, all dualistic ideas. In other words, just practice Zazen, and that's the sitting meditation they do in a certain posture. Do not think about anything, just remain on your cushion without expecting anything. Then eventually, you will resume your own true nature. That is to say, your own true nature resumes itself. So let's just sit for a moment. do not think about anything. Just remain on your cushion without expecting anything. Then eventually you will resume your own true nature. That is to say, your own true nature resumes itself. This talk was given by Sally Klo at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 16, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.